Good morning. And good morning to you, too. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. I'm coming to you on this first day of June with the idea that this is a new day, new start, possibly after so much harm has been done, so much that we've gone through and figured out a way to still be here as a community. How do we keep this community growing? How do we keep it alive? How do we grieve our losses, our mutual losses, our communal losses, and still feel empowered, still want to be informed, and still push ahead? That's all a part of life and going forward, not too fast, forward fast enough to keep the momentum, but not so fast that we forget so quickly what we've been through in this more than a year of suffering and fear and anxiety. Let not the time of the sun now allow us to forget the shadows we lived under for over a year or the people who did not emerge from those shadows. Let's take a moment, a moment to grieve. Please, it's natural. It's natural and take a moment to rest, even though we want to rush into the sun. And I see so many people running around without masks on and deciding that they are going to be invincible. And um, Dr. Fauci and others may claim that that's the right way to go. But I still, one of those people who, you know, I'm still taking the, the slower road back you know, I've got a few too many burn marks on me from what has happened over this last year to go rushing back out into the sun so quickly. I like the sun as well, but I'm going to take my time. Um, for those of you who have been following my ordeal, you know that I did take the first Pfizer shot. I have not taken the second one yet, but I did take the shingles shot, the shingles vaccine. I did that. Um, and so just want to let you know, I'm just taking some time. I know that in the UK, they have 12 weeks between the first vaccination and the second vaccination for COVID-19, 12 weeks between the two. And so um, I talked this over with my primary care physician and she did not have a problem with me taking more than the 21 days between vaccines. So or the shots anyway. And so I'm taking a little more time now since I've taken the shingle shot. I've know people have had shingles. It's not pretty. So I decided to take that. And that's a whole lot to have inside of my body at one time, you know. And so I know Gary Knoll is probably going, what are you doing, woman? But <laughs> that's that's what I want to keep you up on what's happening. But I also want to keep you up on what's happening besides this, what's going on with the U.S. Supreme Court and this special moment that we have in our time a 100 years after the Tulsa massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Our guest today is going to be Alvin Bragg as we continue on to our interviews with the candidates for Manhattan District Attorney. Alvin Bragg will be with us at the 915 segment of this program. In the meantime, let's carry on with business. And that's the business of the Supreme Court the business of the Supreme Court in that there are major cases before the court that will be decided, the most controversial ones they hold off until the end. The Supreme Court term begins the first week of October and continues traditionally with oral arguments that last until 
April, and then the decisions are made throughout the term, but the term officially, unofficially ends in June. And at that point, um, the most controversial decisions are presented. <laughs> There's a joke around the court that the justices present the most controversial decisions right before they leave for vacation so they can get out of town. So we don't know, but we do know that June holds a, a wealth of controversy as far as these decisions go. We know that we have a, a new justice on the court um, and Amy Coney Barrett will be one that who is known as a conservative and we'll see how conservative she's going to be because one of the cases actually pits religion, the Catholic religion, versus gay rights. And in that case, in Philadelphia, in the case, if you want to look it up, is Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. In that case, um, the City of Philadelphia contracted out to private contractors assistance in placing children in um, homes for foster care. One of those private contractors was uh, a Catholic social services agency. However, that Catholic social services agency chose not to place any children with same-sex couples. And so now this issue is whether or not the Catholic Church must, against their religious tenets, place children with same-sex couples when the Catholic Church does not believe in anything but um, relationships between a man and a woman. And so this case um, is going, it's gone before the Supreme Court, is going to be um, decided um, this month. And so that's going to be um, interesting, of course, in, in deciding the, the um, rights of the Catholic Church and there's religious rights in the First Amendment and the rights of, of, of gay couples or same-sex couples and their right to, um, to have children placed with them. Um, another case is regarding voting rights, and this one is going to be very important as well. There's, there are so many voting rights cases going before the court, but this is the one the court decided to um, take on, and that's um, Bronovich versus Democratic National Committee, if you wish to look that up. And this one arises from Arizona, and um, in Arizona, um, the Republicans course had so many voter suppression laws and uh, continue to have and, and try to pass across the country voter suppression laws in the face of the victories of people of color and other groups coming together to actually have their constitutional right to vote as American citizens. And of course, in this country that's based in suppressive laws and violence, when people who are citizens of this country actually act upon their constitutional rights, you see the backlash. And this has happened throughout American history. This was happening before America was even the, the glimmer in the eye of Thomas Jefferson. This, this sense that um, this was going to be a, a country uh, for white supremacy, and especially the white supremacist elites, and that law and violence would be used to maintain that social order. And that has been from the very beginning, from the Virginia colony. It, it persists to this day. That is the foundation of America, using law and violence, suppressive laws and violence, um, in order to maintain a hierarchy based on a, a white uh, Protestant elite and using 
um, white working class, and at that particular time, white indentured servants, um, um, to maintain it. And so here we have in this voting case, um, as a backlash to the, the power of the, the black and brown vote and other voters, we have um, election laws where um, one requires election officials to discard ballots cast at the wrong precinct when they change the precinct. And that's, that's happened to me. I've gone to my, my, I thought was my regular place to vote and I get there and I find out that no, it's been moved or you're in this room with a cacophony of noise, a gymnasium or other type of, of massive room. And there are so many districts in the same room, voting districts, and you're trying to figure out which one is yours. And if you get in the wrong line and you cast your ballot and you find you cast your ballot in the wrong place, they want to discard those and consider it a crime for casting those ballots in the wrong place. On the the aside is, of course, when the Republicans and the other conservatives were looking for criminal ballots, those people, they, they found they were actually Donald Trump's voters who voted more than once or were voting um, in, in, in the name of dead people. Yes, those were Donald Trump's people for, for the most part. And so um, we also have, of course, they call it ballot harvesting, and collecting of ballots and delivering to polling places. And these are just ways to just keep taking little bites out of democracy. And, I, and I've and i come to the conclusion that the United States is not a democracy. I mean, it is a, a republic in which um, people have representative forms of government. But from its very beginning, um, a democracy is meant to allow people who have the constitutional right to vote to do so. And this is not a democracy because it does not allow people with a constitutional right to vote to do so and hasn't from the beginning of this country from the types of, of suppressive voting laws that were put in place from the very beginning when um, the Native American, for example, did not become a citizen in this country until 1924. 1924. You think about the Chinese exclusion laws that were passed in 1882 and stayed in place until the 1900s. And we know well about the grandfather clause um, and the literacy tests and the poll taxes. And the poll tax took um, a constitutional amendment to end in the, the 24th Amendment. And so when we think about a democracy, I, I'm hard pressed and in what I would define as democracy, to find that this is one. Um, it's been said it's a republic. It is a representative form of government. But as we continue to see these suppressive laws, these laws meant to marginalize people, these, these laws meant to undermine the right to vote, um, I am I'm disturbed by the use of the word democracy in this shining light of the on a hill and American exceptionalism. Tell me how this can be a democracy when we have an attack on the Capitol on January 6th and people vote not to investigate it. I, I'm, I'm missing how this is a democracy. And I want you to, to, to continue with me in this theme of law and violence, oppressive laws and violence, as we look to what is um, the 100th year anniversary of the massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a massacre on our soil, not the first one, because we had the red summer 
1919, the Red Summer, in which there were so many attacks by white mobs on black people, families, businesses, burning them to the ground, you know, destroying generations of progress that they called it the Red Summer of 1919. And here we have in 1921, the attack on what was a golden neighborhood, a neighborhood of, of black political and economic and social progress in Tulsa, Oklahoma, attacked by white mobs. And it's been said that that hundreds were murdered, their whole communities burned down. Please use the Internet for more than looking up recipes and go online and look at the images left over from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you will see how can we call this a democracy when this is not the first massacre of its kind. We think about um, Elaine, Arkansas, and we think about, um, you know, East New York, I mean, East St. Louis and, and, and New York City and so many other places around the country that were attacked. We think about this and realize that when we're looking at generational progress, for those of you who are new to this country, relatively new, if you're a first-generation American, you need to know about these massacres that have taken place time and time again. When you wonder why African Americans, as they claim, have not gone far enough, well, we did. And each time, through jealousy, I claim, through jealousy and greed, it's been undermined, that progress, economic, political Social progress has been undermined by law and by violence. So we think about the 100th anniversary and the, and the push for reparations for those in Tulsa. And as we go forward with our discussion around the district attorney's race for Manhattan D.A., I ask, as I did back then and I do now and I continue to ask, and where were the prosecutors? And where were the prosecutors? And so as we look at what a prosecutor's job is to represent the community in, in, in a criminal case, we go forward with our next candidate, Alvin Bragg, after this musical break. And we'll be right back with Alvin Bragg to talk about his candidacy for Manhattan D.A.
J. Blige, My Life. She was inducted into the Apollo Hall of Fame last week, Mary J. Blige, in My Life. And um, that is a beautiful song. And we think about our lives and think about the protection for our lives and think about who are the people in those positions of protection. And we have with us um, candidate Alvin Bragg, candidate for Manhattan DA. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, uh, letting me uh, listen to uh, little Mary J. Blige first thing in the morning. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. I, we try over here. Um, so let's let's jump in. Um, we've had um, the candidates each come on the program and discuss their platforms. And we know that uh, candidates rarely receive enough time to actually go into detail, but we rarely have a chance to actually ask them questions either. You have had more experience at at a higher level than uh, many of the other candidates. And so the questions I'll ask you um, might be more pointed than than the questions asked of others because you've been um, in those um, positions. So when you were deputy, how, how many deputies were there in? In the, the DA's office in Manhattan? So I, I never worked in the district attorney's office, which was a, a, a conscious uh, choice. I was, in, I was in the state attorney general's office. I was a federal prosecutor. And then I was back in the state attorney general's office uh, in leadership. So I was had a number of positions. My last was chief deputy. I was one of two chief deputies uh, co-overseeing the office of more than 1,500 people. Uh, previously, I'd served is the executive deputy attorney general for social justice, overseeing civil rights, health care, environmental and labor enforcement, among other matters. So let's go back. You're in the state attorney general's office. How many deputies were there? So so there were two chief deputies. I was one of them. Uh, and then below us, there were uh, uh, I think, uh, a number of executive deputies overseeing divisions, about four or five of those, um, and then a number of bureaus with bureau bureau chiefs uh, overseeing each one. So maybe the best way, the, sort of, the Civil Rights Bureau had a bureau chief. That bureau is about 15 people. That bureau was within the Social Justice Division, which at one point I oversaw, and then the head of Social Justice then reported to the chief deputy. The reason why I ask is because I've asked before the supervisory responsibilities of the candidates, and each time they they seem to give us a a broad number, and so that's why we wanted to actually know exactly how many people were being supervised. So I can, I mean, mine is easy. I know some of the other candidates don't have the, I think I'm the only candidate who's overseen an entire office. So I reported directly to the attorney general. Um, and I was one of two people overseeing the entire office. So I had under under my supervision, if you look at the organizational chart, more than 1,500 people reporting up to me. Um, my direct reports uh, were, you know, about, you know, five to seven uh, people uh, reporting directly to me, but overseeing the entire office. And I think management is, is key here, um, you know, in order to deliver the kind of culture change I think we need 
in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and think we need a seasoned manager who's, you know, you know, overseen and run an office. And so that means, you know, on my watch, uh, I oversaw the work, you know, of the, the Trump Foundation team, uh, the team that, uh, you know, sued uh, Trump for family separation at the border, having a citizenship question on the census, did the Harvey Weinstein case. Um, so I think that's very important. Uh, and then earlier in my career, I was actually the one, you know, in the courtroom, um, you know, doing cases like prosecuting an FBI agent for um, for uh, for uh, lying, doing cases involving, you know, very, very significant money laundering of, uh, of drug money. So I think it's important. I've done the work. I've done that in in the uh, in the courtroom and then also uh, to have managed and overseen. And I think I'm, I'm really the only one in this office who can say they've overseen the entire office uh, uh, and doing, you know, functions very similar uh, to the DA's office. Thank you. And and I apologize, Chief Deputy Attorney General of New York State. Um, and here's here's a, one of the questions I have that I'm, I'm, I'm going to read off to you. Um, National Criminal Justice Reform, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. What would you change and how would you strengthen it? So, well, one, I would say right now, I think it's a political imperative to pass it, um, you know, so. From a, the political reality, I think it's got some. It changes the, the 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 standard for the use of force for federal officers to one of last resort, uh, which I think is an important standard. It incentivizes the use of special prosecutors, um, you, you know, uh, at the local level. Uh, it, it it ends qualified immunity. So I think now my imperative, if I were you know in the Senate, I'd be pushing to end the filibuster and have a vote on this and on. HR one and the, the important voting matters. Um, you know, could it be strengthened? Yes, I think there. Um, you know, some of the things that it uses as an incentive system uh, with with funding, it could just impose on states and localities. But for me, you know, I think we need to really just pass it uh, and get it through uh, and in the filibuster and, and, and do that yesterday. And so, as a I am a proponent for national criminal justice reform, given the fact that there are 18,000 police jurisdictions. And even if we have a progressive prosecutor in one of those 18,000 jurisdictions, there are so many in which um, there would be so much more work to do. Uh, it, where do you stand on national criminal justice reform? And as I said, to strengthen it, what would you add? So I, I, I would Add, I mean, if you look at the, 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 the funding incentives on special prosecutors, I, I, I would uh, strengthen those. Um, I would uh, give some uh, additional powers to the Department of Justice uh, Civil Rights Division uh, to do the pattern and practice work like the subpoenas. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's an important one. I think what I would mostly add to it is the things that, are funding streams to the states and localities that provide incentives, incentives to set up uh, um, uh, special prosecutors. I would I would mandate that, um, or I would make the the, the incentives such that basically, um, you know, it would be walking away from such significant funding that the localities wouldn't do it. Uh, I agree with you that 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 um, I think the district attorney is very very important, um, but I also agree that. We have so many jurisdictions. Uh, one, one, one piece that is in, uh, important in the George Floyd bill, which I didn't mention, is the, you know, the national registry. Um, and again, I think 
um, that is something that I would I would really you know make sure that there's sort of teeth in terms of um, you know punishments uh, for police departments that did not um, uh, partake in that. Uh, you know, we saw that with uh, Tamir Rice, with someone who was leaving one force and going to another, um, and the and the past disciplinary history wasn't uh, wasn't known uh, to the new force. And so, I would strengthen those provisions as well. I think those are key. Um, regarding um, Tamir Rice and, and other um, instances and police involved civilian shootings and and deaths, there's no clear data collection. What is your stance on data collection and 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 who should be responsible for it? Well, I think I think it should be. So right now, the, the probably the best data collection is the Washington Post website, which scrubs the Internet for it. Um, when I had this function at the New York State Attorney General's office, you know, we put out a, a report of all the data that we were gathering, of calls we were getting. Uh, I think it should be centralized uh, at the federal level with the Department of Justice. And this is one of the things I say in terms of, you know, incentivizing with funding, um, you know, you know, funding this, providing an apparatus for localities to, to require them to, to, to provide this information, um, you know, and then if they don't, withholding, um, uh, you know, key key funding. So I think it should be nationalized. I think we need to, need to tra- trace it. Um, we know it's a key issue, and like I said, the Washington Post database I think is quite helpful. Uh, but but I think having government data on this um, is key and very important. And I, I wrote an op-ed about this very issue uh, last year. Yes, and and one of the uh, the points for full disclosure, um, I have said many times is that that all police departments and the prosecutor's office should be required under penalty of perjury to give this information to the Department of Justice and that the Department of Justice should be data collectors. Um, Because at this point, we should not rely on the media that is calling other media to find this this information, this very vital information. And you mentioned mentioned special prosecutors, and we know that um, New York State has their, their, um, I I believe it was a, a law that was, or at least a, uh, executive order put in place uh, on, regarding special prosecutors that could be put in um, jurisdictions where there's a police involved civilian shooting of an unarmed victim. Uh, but we don't hear much about it. Are you familiar with that? I'm, I'm very familiar. When I was at the attorney general's office, I was, I was there when the executive offer, uh, order was, was written by the governor and I was appointed as the first chief of the unit and, um, you know, we, 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 we did, if you go to the website, you can see did these investigations in a very transparent way and share with a report uh, after, after each uh, instance when we didn't uh, bring a charge. You know, we also did charge a sitting district attorney for, um, for official, official misconduct and for, for perjury. Um, I, I would just a clarification on the law. So there was an executive order. Um, you know, the attorney general, well, with me as part of the leadership team, requested that jurisdiction so that, you know, the, the thesis is so that we'd have a, you know, statewide actor who doesn't have a day-in, day-out relationship with the police department being investigated. And the jurisdiction was, as you said, it was very narrow when I was there. It was unarmed persons whose death had been caused by a police officer. That has now been codified and expanded you know, based upon the work that we did and, and, and the advocates' view of that work, uh, pushing to have it codified 
Uh, so now it's a law, and now the Attorney General of the State of New York has jurisdiction over all deaths caused by police officers, whether the person is armed uh, or not, um, and also applying not just to street encounters but to correctional facilities. So now, as of um, April of this year, the jurisdiction is much, much broader. Oh, excellent. And going back to that prosecutor, could you give us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is one of the more more sobering uh, cases I worked on. It was a unarmed, uh, so it was, the, it was the district attorney in Rensselaer, which is uh, you know right next to Albany. Uh, there was an unarmed black motorist shot at eight times and killed by a police officer. Uh, we at the attorney general's office responded to the scene. Our investigators, uh, 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 believing that it was within our jurisdiction under that executive order, the district attorney showed up, uh, exercised jurisdiction, you know, instructed our investigators to leave, had a press conference side-by-side side with the police, and then rushed it into the grand jury within five days over our protests. Um, the grand jury, quote-unquote, cleared the officer. We then sued the district attorney um, to get his records uh, and then went to the governor and got a special order uh, to do a criminal investigation of the district attorney. We ultimately prosecuted him and alleged that he withheld um, key evidence from the grand jury. Uh, we allege that he immunized the only officer who shot. So one officer at the scene, you give that officer immunity, it, it makes the whole thing, we allege, the sham. Uh, and then we also allege that he lied uh, in, in the course of our, our investigation. Uh, the case uh, went up on appeal. We made some law in this space, and it came back down. Uh, and he, he opted for a bench trial in front of a judge um, and, you know, the, the ju judge, I, I think that they certainly had a professional relationship, uh, um, and and uh, ultimately there was a, an, an acquittal in that case. So uh, the, the district attorney was not reelected, and so I think the people kind of saw uh, the allegations, but the judge saw it differently. Um, but, but an example of, I think, a case that needed to be brought that we haven't been bringing those kind of cases um, and airing this publicly like I said, he was not reelected, and I think the evidence in the courtroom, um, while the judge reached a different, uh, uh, you know, uh, different uh, decision than than we thought the evidence supported, it's still a very worthwhile case to bring and, and, and shining a light on why I think we need special prosecutors. Um, you know, we have a district attorney that that that, that took the course uh, that was taken in that case. Uh, why we need a statewide uh, special prosecutor. You know, for me, but this would, work is all, I mean, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, but, but wouldn't it all also raise what is the consequence for corrupt prosecutors? And and if you were Manhattan DA, and we've had many of the candidates say, well, I would do something if, if, if I found that one of my DAs was actually acting in a corrupt way. Um, what is the consequence for the people, for um, a lawyer who's in a position that, to have absolute immunity and is found to act it in a way such as this, as you've pointed out, what is the consequence? Um, what, what are, well, so what the other consequence, right, was that he, 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 he lost his office at the polls, which were the elected one is, uh, is uh, the, the consequence, obviously not for an assistant district attorney. You know, I, I, I oversaw um, our criminal division in the, in the attorney general's office. And, and so I would say the range of consequences, um, you know, uh, within the control of the district attorney 
uh, up to and including termination. And I've, I've been a part of, you know, decisions like that. Um, then, of course, we have the grievance committee. Um, but ultimately, I do think, like, we, you know, the case I brought, that, that there are cases that warrant criminal sanctions. And that's why we brought that case. You know, I obviously couldn't control um, the judge or what a jury finding would be. But I think me, me bringing that case against the district attorney, uh, you know, the kind of discipline, uh, you know, we had at the attorney general's office, you know, that's emblematic of, you know, what I would do is, is DA, you know, assistant district attorneys who are, um, you know, willfully, you know, whatever it may be here, this was a, someone who we alleged, you know, withheld key evidence from the grand jury. Obviously I'm not going to stand for that. We, you know, I viewed that as a crime, which is why we brought, we brought that charge there. Um, and so what is your position on absolute immunity for prosecutors and prosecutorial discretion. So, you know, I mean, I, 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 I think that case illustrates it. I mean, what absolute immunity is sort of a, you know, a, a, I guess a civil construct, right? I mean, it does not, there was, you know, there was no absolute immunity in that criminal case. Um, it was just that the judge decided against us, didn't say that, that he had immunity. Um, and certainly don't have immunity from, you know, employment action, from termination, from losing your license, um, uh, so, and those are the kinds of steps, um, you know, that as a, the employer, the district attorney, uh, are sort of at our disposal. Uh, you know, I, I think you're talking when you talk about absolute immunity. You're talking about kind of a civil case, um, you know, brought by uh, someone else, um, which would be beyond the purview, you know, of the district attorney's office. But you know, employment uh, discipline, um, referral to the, the grievance committee, uh, and really being, I would say, proactive about it. Um, this is this is very important um, and and not being um, you know waiting for someone to come forward with a complaint but really you know auditing uh, folks works having active supervision uh, you know the exercise of prosecutorial discretion I would underscore runs you know both ways so we talk about it a lot in the discretion to bring cases I've talked a lot during my campaign about the exercise of prosecutorial discretion not to bring cases in certain types of cases that um, you know, we will not bring or that will divert to mental health and substance use disorder. So I think, you know, we need to emphasize that as well, that, you know, the use of the discretion um, to shrink our system, which I think we need to do, you know, to focus on cases that are, you know, ones that, that, that actually have real public safety um, uh, benefits. Thank you. Um, the, Governor Cuomo held a press conference last week in which he stated for New York City that in order for the economy to grow and for the city to really open up, they people must feel safe. They must feel safe. He said this repeatedly. Um, there has been an uptick in um, it, situations involving young people and guns. Um, we know that this is, you know, uh, unacceptable. But the question then remains, where are they getting these guns? And why is it that when we look at the prosecution around um, issues involving gun violence, we're not looking at where the guns are coming from? I have one question here. Um, someone has said that it's almost as, as if we're repeating the time period in which our urban areas were flooded with drugs, in particular heroin, and now it seems our urban areas are being flooded with guns. I'm so glad you asked this question because this is something I think about all the time. So you know, I, I grew up in Harlem during the mid-'80s, during the height of the crack cocaine epidemic. I had a gun pointed at me six times, uh, three by police officers during unconstitutional stops. 
uh, and three times by people who weren't police. Uh, I've had a loved one. I don't know if you have any of your listeners that have this experience. I hope not. You know, have his best friend gunned down in front of him, and I was helping him navigate the system and looking at the blank stare in his eyes. So this is an issue of critical importance. I think the areas where we have the guns flooding in are also the areas where we have the the most acute police accountability issues. That was my certainly my experience growing up. Uh, when I was at the Attorney General's office, we worked on this exact issue. We looked at every single gun found at a crime scene in the state of New York, and we traced each of those guns back to their last lawful sale from a federally licensed firearm dealer, many of those being from down south, what we call the Iron Pipeline. Uh, the, the portal we built is a, you know, a blueprint for how we should be handling these cases, um, and that would be a centerpiece of, of, of my gun plan uh, as district attorney. Uh, you know, my theory of prosecution is you follow the, the, the money and you follow the contraband, whether that's guns or drugs, you follow them, uh, you will, they will take you to the most culpable people, uh, you know, the people high up on the chain, the ones who are making the money off of this, uh, and hold them responsible uh, and, and will have enduring public safety benefits. So that's, we've built this. We've built, we've, we've, we've built a data portal that does exactly that, traces the guns back. I, we can tell you with precision, which, uh, you know, dealers are, are, you know, selling guns that end up at crime scenes here and, and how, how long it takes between when they're sold and when they end up at a crime scene. And, and, and that's uh, where we need to be focusing uh, our, our investigations to stop the flow. There are people sitting far away from Manhattan profiting off of our pain. And you've been endorsed by um, some pretty powerful entities, one being the New York Times. Um, and seem to be a, a forerunner, uh, the the front runner, and the the person who comes to the system um, that is in need of progress with the the uh, most experience, uh, supervisory experience, et cetera. So, um, with all of that, where do you see um, your need for improvement? Well, so. And I, and I hope the, the, the you know the voters agree with you. The the, the, the front runner will ultimately be decided on on, on primary day. Um, you know, look, I, I think the biggest thing, and I've learned this, um, you know, from from my prior experience, is team building. Uh, and so, what we elect as district attorney is going to be key. Um, you know, but the judgment in, you know, who we bring in, and I have a day one plan on my website talking about um, certain positions ahead of policy. Uh, ahead of intake, uh, so I think those structures are important, and what will be what will be key to you know, the successful endeavor is who uh, you know we draw to the office to those key positions to help us both shrink the system and make it fairer, um, while also um, you know uh, focusing on on safety. And so I would say thinking about it as you know me as a district attorney uh, uh, and, and building out a team and a team that that collaborates with our our community partners, a team that understands community engagement. I think that is the, the most sort of key, key thing. Um, and, you know, I think I, 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 I'm grateful to have a number of um, endorsers, Glenn Carr, Eric Garner's mother, who I represent, four members of the Exonerated Five, and I, I highlight them, uh, you know, because I think doing this reform in conjunction with people who have been most impacted uh, you know, I talk a lot about my brother-in-law, who, who was the, the person I said had the, you know, his best friend killed in front of me. He was incarcerated. He lived with me for a year plus afterwards. My reentry plans are based upon my experiences there. Uh, so I think 
I'm, 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 I am happy to have the support of many, um, and I think prioritizing giving primacy to those who've been affected by the system um, and have deep knowledge of it is 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 what I've done on the campaign trail. But more importantly, I would say sort of that's that's how I want to govern. And I have two quick questions for you. They may be quick. We'll see. Um, one is from our listeners is on white collar crime. So much of our focus is put on the crime that we can see on the news day to day. And very little is actually on white collar crime. Um, so I know um, in the New York State Attorney General's office, it's known internationally for uh, bringing big cases when it comes to white collar crime, but the DA's office is as well. So do you have in, in mind a strategy around white collar crime? De- definitely. So you know, this is something that I've worked um, on for the past 20 plus years and you know, worked on one of the most significant antitrust cases in our region's history, worked on one of the most significant money laundering cases. I've done some significant public corruption work prosecuting the uh, the, the former head of the, the, the majority leader of the state Senate, prosecuting two mayors, one for campaign finance fraud and one for um, uh, uh, one for a bribery. Uh, so this is key work that we've got to do from public corruption to uh, Wall Street. Uh, and what I would say that I think is important is is the connectivity between these cases and 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 our street safety. So I did a case involving um uh the the um a lawyer who was you know doing sham closings and uh ripping people off that kind of conduct destabilizes neighborhoods we saw that from the last bubble and created um, conditions that 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 were not good for communities uh, i prosecuted the the due diligence the person who was in charge of a project to get our public schools online closing the digital divide years ago um and instead of you know working to do that he you know, embezzled millions of dollars. Um, I think about that when I think about, you know, the virtual learning that we've had. So these cases, uh, one, are very important to show that we've got one standard of justice for everyone, but they also have real effects on on our public health and our public safety. Um, you know, the case I mentioned earlier, the, the, the money laundering uh, case, that was the, uh, the person prosecuted there was the owner of a $30 million business they seen as sort of you know a white collar case. The charge was money laundering, but he was um, you know laundering drug money for for a very violent group, a group that was beheading people. Uh, so I would 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 raise up the importance of the white collar work, and we're going to do it from public corruption to Wall Street, um, but also we're going to think about um, traditional you know street crimes, if you will, the guns and the drugs by following the contraband, the drugs and the guns. And the money to people who are running these structures uh, so that we can dismantle those structures and have more enduring public safety. I think that is key uh, as well. So white collar, yes, Wall Street and public corruption. I've done that and continue to do it. It's really important. But also using those same tools um, to disrupt um, 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 systems that deliver um, you know, violence uh, to our streets as well. And that would be very interesting because we rarely see those um, white-collar kingpins in handcuffs on television. 
um, not in any um, media, but usually in a television show. Um, I want to, uh, and we've been talking with Alvin Bragg, candidate for Manhattan District Attorney, and I want to turn to one quick question. Um, you said in the very beginning that you made it a point not to work in the DA's office. And so when you become, if that is uh, the will of the people, the Manhattan District Attorney, how are you going to, um, I guess, structure your office differently since you work so closely with NYPD that you're not going to have the same results with this hand-in-glove relationship in which so many in NYPD feel they have a sense of immunity because the prosecutors turn a blind eye to what um, many police officers are doing. Right. So I, I wanted to work on the kind of cases that I just described, um, which I thought would be more impactful. Uh, and I also felt, you know, someone who's grown up in Harlem in the 80s, you know, been you know, stopped at gunpoint three times by the NYPD, um, you know, was concerned about, um, you know, participating in some of those uh, uh, cases, uh, having been on the receiving end. So, you know, my office is going to have a different focus. We're going to focus on, on those cases where we're following the money and the contraband, um, really going to be a significant focus. We're going to, as we talked about earlier, uh, you know, the decline uh, cases that I wouldn't have wanted to sort of participate in as a, in, 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 as a, as a line assistant district attorney had I gone there. And then very importantly, we, we're going to really uh, focus on changing uh, uh, the recruitment for the office, focusing on people um, who have been affected by the system, focusing on people who had some of the experiences I had growing up. So we can get a real 360-degree view um, of the system within the office. Uh, so I think changing uh, the focus of the docket, changing who we recruit, and then I'm working with NYPD. Look, I, I, I have done it before. Uh, you know, when I was prosecuting that FBI agent for um, uh, for lying, I also had cases with the FBI. I mean, the the, the, uh, the case that I mentioned with the uh, the lawyer who was. Uh, you know, stealing mortgage money. Um, you know, that was a case with the FBI that I did sometime at the FBI agent case. And and what I've said to, to, to law enforcement is this is a public safety issue, right? Um, if if you don't lie and if you don't obstruct justice, which was the facts in those, the, that case, then it's not you shouldn't be worried about me, the prosecutor. You need to be worried about your now former colleague for doing that work because that 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 criminal activity that the agent engaged in undermined the integrity of the system, which then made it harder to go out and get victims to come forward, witnesses to come forward. Uh, and, and so I've had that conversation time and time again, um, whether either from my seat as chief deputy at the attorney general's office, um, you know, testifying before the state Senate um, and the, and the, and, and the city council on various criminal justice reform issues. Uh, and I think it's a conversation we have to keep having. And the one I would have is district attorney. You know, working with the, the the NYPD on the kind of cases I've addressed that that I think speak to public safety, while also saying these fairness and civil rights issues—they're not off to the side, they're not ancillary. They are key to our true community-based public safety. We can't have public safety uh, if we don't have that community trust. And we're talking with Alvin Bragg, candidate for Manhattan DA. We have 30 seconds, Mr. Bragg. Tell them why they should vote for you. We need a district attorney with, with deep management experience, one who's uh, got courtroom experience, both um, bringing complicated cases to make it safer and the kind of civil rights work that I've done. And third, it's time that we have a district attorney who 
has known the effect of this system firsthand. You know, someone who's had a relative reentering from incarceration live with him, someone who's had the warrant squad bang at his door, someone who's had a semi-automatic weapon to his head, someone who's had the police stop him, uh, someone raising uh, um, black children in the city where the, the age uh, I was when I was first stopped. Uh, it is key. Uh, it informs all that I have done. It informs my policies. And let's say, you want to learn more, please go to alvinbrad.com uh, or on social media at NYC. Thank you so much uh, for the time to engage and talk about these, these issues of critical importance to our community. Thank you so much, Mr. Bragg. And remember, um, June 22nd is the primary. We've been talking with Alvin Bragg, candidate for district attorney. We'll be right back after this musical break. Give me a ticket for an airplane I ain't got time to take no fast train Oh, the lonely days are gone I'm coming home Well, my baby, she wrote me a letter I don't care how much I've got to spend Yeah, Joe Cocker, the letter. Well, you don't have to write me a letter. You can just make a call if you want to. We can open the phone lines very quickly, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Tell me what you think of the interview we just had with candidate Alvin Bragg, 212-209-2877. And while um, you're getting your phone lines together, 212-209-2877, to tell us very quickly, quickly what you thought of our interview with candidate Alvin Bragg for um, Manhattan District Attorney. I want to let you know, as you may know, that I've got a new book out. She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law and Power. She Took Justice, A Black Woman, Law and Power. And uh, that book does speak to not just of the the black woman as a uh, a lawyer or a judge um, that gets to that near the end, all the way from Queen and Zynga to Shirley Chisholm. We're looking at ways in which um, the, the black woman has been affected by law, has affected law, and has looked law straight in the eye and said, hey, you know what? I'm a full-fledged human being, even if the law doesn't see me as one, and I'm going to act in that manner and force a place at the table 
And if we don't have a chair for me as a black woman, we'll throw some elbows and fit our way onto um, that that table to fit our way, sit it. Seating, 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 seating. The seating never has enough room for all of us, but it could and it should. The seating is always the question, isn't it? Are we able to take a seat at the table? The seating always so rigidly protected by the gatekeepers. But I digress. 212-209-2877. And, um, we are looking for your viewpoint on um, our conversation. And we have our first caller. Good morning. How are you? I'm ahead of her. Yes. Hello. Good morning. You're on Law of the Land. Yes. Good morning, Gloria. How are you? Uh, I want to ask you your, your, your guest a question. I assume, I believe, he, is he still there or, or he had gone? He's gone. He's we're we're just talking about what do you think of the interview? What do you think of him as a candidate? Uh, well, I'm gonna be honest with you. Sounds so you know how everyone sounds, you know. But uh, uh, being that he was he's he's an ex prosecutor, you know, I think uh, you have a lot of candidates that are uh, uh, that are in the DA's office or what was once in the DA's office, you know. But uh. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I can tell you, I, I, I guess I wait and see. But I wanted to ask him a due process question, but not there. Uh, are you familiar with the federal laws? Well, it all depends, but we're at the end of the show, and so we wanted to focus on wow, um, what you thought of his conversation. Okay, because I want to know, uh, when they have surveillance on, one, on someone, and they want to... State had to have a, a commission from from a judge. Hello. They made sure to get this. Okay. Okay. Sorry, but we do have one other call. Um, are you on? Please, Gloria. Uh, I I love your shows. Uh, I thought that the uh, the candidate. Uh, uh, comment was, uh, for me, typically political. What I wanted to hear, I wanted to hear him say he's going to take a position against the 48-hour gag law for police. I wanted to hear him say he's going to take a position against hiring police officers from out of the county district that come from segregated communities, because I think that's a principal uh, principal uh, cause or principal ingredients in the racism that's being perpetrated against black people is come, these white officers coming from segregated communities. And I also wanted to hear him speak a bit more forceful about the, uh, the, the penalties imposed against police officers uh, charged with, with um, brutality but we're not convicted in criminal court. There are things that you can do administratively. Take their pension. You can find them. Whatever. You know what I'm saying? That's what I wanted to hear. And would you ask those questions of the future guests, whether it's a mayor or another attorney, please? 
Uh, thank you so much, and I'm and I'm glad that that you raised that. Um, for anyone who has questions as we go forward, we still have a, a few more interviews. G B Marshall at wbai.org. G B Marshall, Marshall with two L's. G B B for Brown, Marshall at wbai.org. If you have other questions and you see that's what I am asking him, my questions as well as yours. Thank you so much, and I will keep that in mind for our future interviews. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We had today Alvin Bragg, a candidate for Manhattan District Attorney. We talked about the U.S. Supreme Court cases that will be decided this month, um, many of them very controversial cases as the Supreme Court waits until the end of the term to um, render its most controversial decisions. And we know that this is the 100th anniversary of the massacre of the African-American community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, by by thousands of whites, many of whom were deputized to go into those communities and commit murder and burn down businesses and homes, too often based on jealousy. This is what we've been dealing with and what we call an American democracy. I'm Gloria J. Brown Marshall. This is Law of the Land. Support this station as best you can, 212-209-2950. Give to this station and support all that we do here if you can, because I want to continue to see you on the radio.